Welcome back to the Geared for Growth Property Investing Podcast bonus series where we talk the property investment journey from start to finish. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, and I'm glad to be sharing the time with you. If you're a big fan of the podcast, uh, please click on the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode, and a review would be good too, but no hate mail if you don't mind. This is actually part two of the conversation I had with Simon Presley. Now, in part one, we talked about the major don'ts when it comes to deciding where to buy your investment property, but the conversation wouldn't be complete without getting Simon's take on what we should be doing instead. Simon and his team at Propertyology spend their days studying the property economics of literally every town and city in Australia. And I can't think of anyone better place to talk about where we should be looking to invest our hard-earned money. Welcome back, Simon. Simon Presley, thanks for coming back for part two of Finding Real Estate Growth Locations. My pleasure, Mike. This, I think, uh, is what we're all waiting for. We talked about all of the don'ts when you're doing your your property research and even probably defining what research is and maybe that not matching what people actually do when they're reading up on things. But let's talk about the, the positive things that people can do to help find the next growth location. Yeah, um, well, number one on my do's list is is to treat property as a financial instrument. Uh, and what I mean by that, you need to you need to do your best to adopt the same mindset that the person who chooses to invest in a different asset class shares. They they don't make their decisions to buy stocks in a particular company just because they they buy goods or services from that company, or they work with that company, or they like their logo. They're they're highly subjective and emotional things, and have no bearing at all on the performance of that stock um the share investor takes an interest in well you know what company um what industry is that particular company in and what's what are the things at a macro level that are going to affect the economic performance of of that particular industry are they positive are they negative and you know what are the competitors in it and what are the financial metrics relation relating to this company um i'm not a you know an avid share investor but you can make money in anything, including in real estate. And, and key to giving yourself the best chance of making the most money is to treat it like a financial instrument. It's not about the bricks and the mortar. It's not about the see and the touch. That's often the attraction for someone choosing property over shares is the see and the touch, but it's also the undoing of investors realising their full potential. Mm. It's hard though because we do have that emotional attachment. Of course, it's tangible, whereas a, a share is just kind of a register on a bit of online paper, uh, yep. but it, but it's something that can can really muddy our vision when we're looking at investing, right? It's it's not a good thing to picture yourself in it. No, it's not, and, and it's 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 completely natural to make decisions like that based on how we feel and how it looks, and that's 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 the natural reaction of human beings. What's important as an investor to understand that you know whether you're honest with yourself or not is to understand that's actually what's happening. Um, beneath beneath the surface, and and you need to put some, I guess, insurance some um, parameters uh, around you to stop that happening. I mean, Propertyology has a very very structured process. Firstly, to work out which towns and cities will we invest in, and then secondly, within a chosen town or city, which individual property um, will we, you know, um, dig dig deeper into and work out whether we we want to invest in that particular property or not. The reason we have those structures is it's a process of elimination. Um, to help us make this really good financial decision and at the same time put some put some barriers up for all those emotional things and the bias things getting in the way. Mm. And when we think about property as a financial instrument, I think it, 
immediately it changes the way that we would do our research because unfortunately a lot of property investors will look at something that's around the corner whereas you're you're zooming out and your start point is Australia right yeah absolutely yeah we uh so that's that's uh, uh um, point number two of our uh do's on our action list is the only way to invest in real estate is to be completely borderless. So where you personally live, the town or city that you're in, is irrelevant because you're not buying the property um, for that purpose. You're buying it for a future financial outcome. So we need to, again, like the share investor, they've got I think it's 1,300 companies on the Australian Stock Exchange. Well, your equivalent to that as a property investor is you've got 200 individual towns and cities across this big country spread across eight states and territories. You're, you owe it to yourself, not to me or anybody else. Each, each investor owes it to yourself to take an objective look at all of those locations. Now, that doesn't guarantee that you'll pick the best one. What it certainly absolutely does do is give yourself a chance of a much better financial performance over time than just being the hometown hero. Property markets do not have ears. You can buy in your hometown, you can barrack on the sidelines, but the market cannot hear you. Um, so it's not going to influence. And take it from someone who learned that lesson at much, you know, much younger age, um, you know, following my own confirmation bias and investing in my hometown of Brisbane, and then 10 years later the property's worth not much more than what I paid for it, that, 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 I turned that frustration into, um, I guess, part of our learnings. That's good. It's unfortunate for you, but we're benefit- benefiting from the pain that that, that, <laughs> that caused you. So you know, it's a positive somewhere in the universe. Now, absolutely. Well, when people get on realestate.com, often they'll do things like, you know, here's my price point, and they'll they'll have an idea about the yields in a certain area, and, and it's very property focused, right? You get the visual of it, whereas we don't necessarily visualize cities. But you you see the city as as the main determining factor of performance rather than you know is it a duplex or is it a three better versus a four better does the sort of demographics of the area matter too much to you is it really a city driven thing or region Um, town suburb everything has some value mike but it's 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 absolutely true to say that some things have a lot more value than others now to put a percentage on it um for you my, my best guess is the selection of the individual town or city well, we'll probably uh, do about 80% of the lifting of your hard-earned investment dollar. So if you get that wrong, then it really won't matter what property, what individual property you buy within it. You'll be disappointed, you know, over the course of time. Conversely, you can you can just be lucky and buy um, a crappy property on a cra- crappy street. But if you've got the city selection right, um, you, you will have done a lot better. Now, let's use some modern-day examples of what we're talking about. Um, if you bought, uh, you or I, you know, 10 years ago, Let's say we, we grew up in Perth all their life. Beautiful city, Australia's fourth biggest city, a capital city. I can promise you it would not have mattered as an investor or owner-occupier if we bought a house, an apartment, a townhouse, an inner city, a middle suburb, a luxury, a stock standard dwelling. Ten years later, that dwelling is worth less than what you paid for it. Mm. The issue there is clearly got nothing to do with the property, or the suburbs within Perth, it's Perth itself. And even Other worse than even worse than that, you have to go for the Eagles. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know there are other parts of Australia where, as I said, you know the opposite could have happened. You, you could have made a really bad asset selection, um, whether it was the, the part of town or the individual street or the asset type or whatever. But if if you you know um, whether by just luck. 
or whether by good quality research. If you got the selection of the city correctly, the value of, of your asset, you know, may well have doubled over the last 10 years. So uh, that is the most important decision, is the selection of the individual town or city. So, again, bring it back to one of our don'ts from the first episode. Don't be that hometown hero buying, you know, doubling down and just investing in your hometown because you feel you know your property market, but you just know your neighbourhood. You are taking that risk. You are not considering... Uh, you're only considering one out of 200 individual towns or cities. And it is and nice what's to... happened to Perth over the last 10 years can happen anywhere, anytime. Yeah, you exactly. just don't want that to happen to you. Exactly. And it is nice to walk past a property and point at it and go, that's one of mine, but is that worth $50,000 a year? <laughs> Maybe not. True. One one thing that um, makes me think that I couldn't do what you do um, is is I get spreadsheets on all sorts of things. Um, I've been looking at crime statistics. Just I don't know, just a sickness. Um, I get <laughs> I get um, I get property statistics, but a lot of things that you can't really get data on is what's happening in individual LGAs or cities or, or, or towns from an economic point of view? What, what's in the pipeline? What infrastructure are they planning? You know, what's their vision? How, how on earth – I mean, that's a huge driver, right? But, like, that, that must be a full-time job. It, it's not a report you can download across Australia very, very easily. Uh, absolutely, and, that, and, that, and this is, I guess, the main reason why I maintain that you know, whilst plenty of people have, you know might be interested in property market research, this is not something that you can do yourself if you if you really want to do it well. It, you know, propertyology would would devote no less than five hours, you know, every single day, and this is with a you know a, a foundation of a um, a work life career behind us as well. But we would we would spend five hours every single day just consuming information that relates to local economic conditions for each of those 200 individual towns and cities. Now, some of that um, information is in is in data, is in numeric, um, which can be interesting, but most of it's not in numbers. Um, uh, uh, the most important stuff, you know, comes from decisions that have been made uh, that are, and some of those decisions can have a positive or a negative impact on an individual town or city. So, um, you know, every single day we're reading all sorts of, reports from literally dozens and dozens of um, different sources um, and when we're scouring looking for announcements and decisions that one way or another are going to affect jobs, mm. job creation or future job losses. And it's the sum of all these economic factors uh, that we make an objective, objective assessment on as to whether we should be starting to really hone in on a particular location. There could be a location that in a, in a chosen year the market might be dead flat might have been dead flat or, you know, even gone backwards for some years um, immediately prior to this point in time. But but in recent times, there could have been a lot of um, really positive, exciting economic decisions that have been made. Mm. Um, and that's that, that's the sort of stuff that um, grabs our attention. Um, and we then dig deeper and, and, and decide whether we want to invest there or not. If we're zeroing- it happens in reverse as well. You know, there can be things that are unfolding that a property market might be hot today but there could be some, you know, for the, for the educated eye, there could be some really important red flags to be saying this might look a lot different um, in one or two years' time. One thing that I guess we can see with with certain areas is the this construction activity, so so housing mm. starts. Um, how, how important is, is that as a, as a metric for people to look at when they're looking at a certain area? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. 
you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. I just said that the most important thing for property investors is local economic conditions. The second most important thing is understand, you know, what is housing supply? Um, what are the factors that influence it? What are the leading indicators? And and, and, and make that a priority uh, for you. Um, the same re- the same way I said earlier that there could be an individual property market that's, you know, been really strong now and for a few years, but there could be some stormy, stormy clouds coming with the economy. The same can happen with supply. It's not that long ago, um, that both Sydney and Melbourne at the same time went through that. The the two years ending July 2019, so um, you know a little bit before COVID uh, COVID arrived, Sydney's median house price might decline by one hundred and ninety thousand dollars in that two year period of time, and Melbourne's apartments declined by one hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars. So Melbourne's houses declined one hundred thirty thousand dollars in that same two year period of time, and that, that was caused an oversupply. Now, the oversupply was actually created during Sydney and Melbourne's property boom. Mm-hmm. No coincidence, the property boom was driven by local economic conditions um, that, that you know went from being weak uh, from sort of the GFC through to 2012 to progressively improving. As Sydney and Melbourne's economy improved, the property market went up with it. But during that economic boom, one key industry for Sydney and Melbourne is their construction industry. They got yeah. overstimulated. And the warning signs there, the leading indicators that we look at, as early as 2015, we started to, to grow increasingly concerned about a, a pending oversupply in, in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and that, that oversupply that we were initially concerned about was realised in, um, in 2017. Mm, yeah, that can happen anywhere. If you can oversupply our two bigger cities, both have got populations of you know over five million. If you can oversupply them, you can oversupply anything at any time. The key thing for a property investor is to recognise that that can happen, um, and, and make sure you really understand the supply chain of you know each individual market across Australia. It sort of seems like a weird paradigm that the the construction activity could have uh, delivered the boom in some respects because there's plenty of jobs in it, but then they're building. Correct extra supply which you know <laughs> absorbs up that pressure and and brings the prices back down yeah and look right here and right now mike you know the you know one of um one of several very important uh stimulus packages in australia in response to COVID was let's stimulate the construction sector now at a macro level you know, i think that's a, it's a great initiative there's so many jobs that that hinge off construction it's not just those with the tool belt um, it's, it's, you know, it's in retail and, uh, and a lot of white-collar jobs. So it's a great initiative. But now more than ever, propertyology is very mindful of those 550 city councils across Australia and looking at the leading indicators because there's some red flags that we're, we're starting to see of locations that whilst they're hot at the moment, they, they might only be a year or two away from experiencing an oversupply situation. So, you know, it could be some deja vu moments of what, uh, what we're just talking about with Sydney and Melbourne and some other parts of Australia and potentially even even again in Sydney and Melbourne itself. Mm. Um, so, you know, today um, the population in both Sydney and Melbourne is, is actually less than what it was directly before COVID. Melbourne and Sydney's population has technically declined over the, uh, over the last 18 months, but yet we're ramping up construction. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. No- Nothing to see here. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to change tack for a second um, because I know you're an advocate of, of diversification and, and sort of saying, you know, investing in, in say, um, affordable properties in a, in a number of locations is going to outperform, you know, one or two expensive ones. But, you know, there are added costs involved in that, like the, the stamp duty, you know, getting in and out of properties. There's, there's, there's a fair bit of red tape involved in that. Is, there, is, is that always the case, you think? Or, or is it possible that people can be lucky and, and purchase in, you know, a big parcel and, and do pretty well out of it? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's always uh, an element of luck involved in investing, but, I, but I'd suggest that the, the cost of property is too expensive to be crossing your fingers and relying on luck. You, you don't need to do it. I'd argue that it's reckless to do that. Um, you know, I'm going to, you know, encourage everyone, I'd be a hypocrite if I suggested that people do something that I didn't practice myself. Um, I, I flatly refuse to buy properties that cost any more than $650,000. Um, you know, I think in all the years, and Propertyology has been doing this since before the GFC, the however many hundreds and hundreds of properties that we've bought, um, an overwhelming majority of them have a purchase price of less than 500. Um, now, that's not that's not to say that we haven't got heaps of clients that could have afforded a million dollar property or a two million dollar property, and I'm not saying that those one or two million dollar properties haven't grown in value. What I am saying is, no one's god, including Propertyology. Um, and it makes no financial sense to expose yourself to the risk of something that you can't know about today happening next year or 10 years down the track that has a, uh, a big adverse impact on your property market. But you've only got yourself to blame if you put so much capital into that one asset. It, it's just you know, really important to respect that really sensible saying, never ever place all your eggs in the one basket. We know, we know there's, a, there's a big plethora of evidence. We know that um, uh, the more affordable properties that you could, you know, we could buy for five hundred to $650,000, they've got just as much potential for growth, in a lot of cases more um, potential for growth than the real expensive ones. But instead of buying one property worth 500000 and stop there, if you can afford to buy a million-dollar property, well, you, need to, you still need to invest a million bucks, mm. but not across one asset. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a form of diversification, which is an insurance policy. Um, it's also a smart way of taking advantage of more opportunities rather than just the one opportunity. And your cash flow is so much better. Um, the rental um, uh, or the, the net profit of your investment uh, profit loss statement for that one expensive property will look a lot worse each and every financial year than what it would for two or three more affordable properties with a combined um, similar value. Yeah, and I guess if we circle back to the previous episode, number one of your don'ts is not to put all your eggs in one basket. So I think we yep. we covered that off pretty well. Um, you, you, you talked a little bit about yields. Now, there's a lot of uh, talk on, say, property forums and buyers agents that really just focus their decisions on yield. And I think you know, it, it can look attractive to beginning investors that, you know, you chase these high yielding properties and you try and get 30 of them. Um, you, you have always respected yield. You've always reported on yield, but you've kind of said, well, that's just part of holding something that you hope is a growth asset. So, so does that put you in the growth versus yield side of the debate? Both are important, um, you know, and cash flow um, is what can get some people into trouble. If, if, if they have, for whatever reason, a variety of things can happen to an investor that adversely affects their cash flow um, to the point that they might have only one option, and that's to sell. 
and Murphy's Law, you know, it often isn't too kind at that particular point in time. It might be the worst time to sell your particular property. So we always need to respect cash flow. Um, cash flow also um, enables us to continue to invest because, you know, just having that one or two investment properties for, for almost everybody will never be anywhere near enough um, for you to realise the retirement lifestyle that you want. So, um, you know, you need to be, you need to invest um, frequently and respecting the cash flow um, each and every time you do invest is important to that. But the number one objective, I've got really, very strongly, should be um, investing for capital growth. Um, because I'll put it this way, let's say, you know, Michael Strong will retire in, say, 20 years' time. Um, if the property that we buy today hasn't grown much over that, you know, 20-year um, period of time, but we chose to buy the property because it had, let's say, a 6% yield, you know, much higher than uh, than something else, but we've only got ourselves to blame. But mm. conversely, if we respected the importance of cash flow but didn't allow it to dominate our decision, so we bought a property that had, still had a good yield, Four and a half to five percent, or something like that. But the reason for buying that property was we were we understood the importance of capital growth. Now, if that property that we paid five and a grand for had grown to be worth one point five million dollars in years to come, who's going to have the better retirement lifestyle? Mm. It, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah, so exactly. The objective should always be investing for growth, um, but doing it in a, in a sustainable, responsible way. Even those who've got high income and go, I really don't care about the cash flow. Probably all of you hear a lot of people say that. You do need to care about the cash flow. And even if you can afford it, the way the banks are going to assess your loans, not just now, but next time you want to invest, will be different to you know, how it affects you in a, in a practical sense. So we do need to respect that cash flow. Yeah, you're right. And I guess once you start getting to a certain portfolio size, it, it, it becomes a, a a banking game, right? How you yes. look on paper. Now, um, when it comes to finding these growth areas, there's a lot of indicators that I guess you will see and, and be able to determine, you know, that's a positive sign for the market. Can you, you talk us through some of them and also the difference between leading and lagging indicators? Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar with the terms leading and lagging, lagging is um, both, both are data. But, but data in a lagging form is, is reporting something that's already happened. Now, stating the obvious, you can't invest in the past. You're investing in the future. So the classic example in real estate of a, of a lagging piece of information is the core logics of the world who on the first day of every month, they say, you know, change of median house prices in eight capital cities was X. Um, now, that's, that's interesting. But whether those numbers are good or bad, you can't in, you can't invest in last month or last year. You're investing in the year the years to come. So, um, you know, we 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 see uh, um, lots of investors who think that they've done some research and you know discovered a hot spot. And their research, when you really dig deep, is they found a location um, that might not be a high profile location, but it's growing really really strong. It's had thirty percent growth in the last two years. So that, so that's their research. Well, how useful is that? Mm-hmm. It's already happened. Um, so, so leading indicators, there's some of those leading indicators on the supply side, building approval um, numbers, for example. So the dwellings have not been approved yet. There's nothing tangible you can see, but there is a big bunch of important numbers that, that can give investors important information about um, what's in the front windscreen of the supply of our, of our chosen market. Are they, is there likely to be um, 
a reasonable, reasonably balanced volume of, of housing supply in the next couple of years, or is there actually a risk of there being too much of it? That's an example of a leading indicator. Mm. Um, vacancy rates can be a leading indicator of what, as well. That that's sort of a measurement of rental supply, um, and, and you know can give you an appreciation for how your your rents are, li- are likely um, to be. Is there um, are the vacancy rates trending lower, or are they increasing? Um, that's giving you a bit of a front windscreen indicator of uh, a rent's likely to go up or likely to go down and, you know, um, some indicators of what sort of pressure is there. And on the economic side of things, um, not expressed in numbers, but we're talking earlier about decisions that have been made, uh, you know, at an individual local economy level, um, never make a, a decision to invest in a location based on just one announcement. It needs, you need to have a big body of evidence. And if you've got that big body of evidence that you know, one way or another it says, suggests there's going to be lots of jobs, that is a leading sign for what that local economy is going to look like in a couple of years' time. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you've written a, a great blog on your top 10 um, influ- influential uh, macro factors that you think is going to, to drive the property market. So I would recommend people go and check that out on your blog as well. Uh, Simon, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> Thank you for, for joining us for these two episodes, the do's and don'ts of, of finding these growth locations. It's been a pleasure as always. My pleasure, Mike. Cheers.